Tom Poteet with Mesa Solutions. Mesa Solutions. What is Mesa Solutions? Where are you guys located? Uh, well, our corporate headquarters is in Denver, Colorado. Our manufacturing center is in Casper, Wyoming. Our corporate development office is in Oklahoma City, and we have about 10 shops uh, throughout the central United States in configuration with the shale place. Okay, so where, where are you located? Oklahoma City. Okay, you're in Oklahoma City. Gotcha. All right. So uh, Mesa Gas, it's a natural gas solution. So what solution are you guys providing? Right. So we provide natural gas engine-powered generators that are portable and have a real interesting fuel intake flexibility. And by that, I mean the, the engines will run on a really wide BTU range of gas. To be specific, it's from about 750 BTU up to about 2,500 BTU. So we can run off a wellhead gas or field gas right out in the field. What we usually encounter out there is about 800 to 1,200 BTU. And the, the upper end, 2,500, is uh, a nice nice number it's the same as uh, propane so all of our units can run on propane as well and a lot of our customers will set up to run off of some natural gas source and go ahead and and uh, put in a propane as a backup if they think that the the um, natural gas supply might be variable and so we have a nice control system on there that'll switch back and forth from one fuel to the other without dropping the load. So that's been a good market differentiator for us. There's no shortage of natural gas. What's your biggest successes and your biggest barriers to try to get into that marketplace? Like I said, you know, there's, there's no shortage of it. Yeah. Um, just about every shale play well is going to produce some usable gas. Not, not all of them, but, but uh, most. And so... A big differentiator for us has been reliability and service. We're not the only ones out there that purvey these sorts of engines uh, or this, these sorts of generators that are that are based on uh, these engines. But there's been several things that have, have given us market success. One is most of the most of the players in this space really just cover half the space. They either make gen sets and sell them to a variety of companies that lease them or they lease gensets and buy them from wherever they can get them so by manufacturing them ourselves and leasing and maintaining them ourselves we've developed a really what i call a, a low friction quality conversation loop between manufacturing and field operations so anytime either side has a better idea for doing something it's pretty easy for us to think about that, vet it internally, and, and implement a change. The other thing, uh, or another thing, that has really helped us in the market is uh, our technicians are really excellent, excellent and well-trained, and almost somewhere between 70 and 80% of our technical force out in the field are veterans, and it's a very highly dedicated source. I used to say that they were obsessed with quality, but it would be more accurate to say that they're possessed with quality. And uh, we just strive really hard to make sure that the customers stay online and, and are satisfied. One of the things we've brought up on this program, I'm curious to 
hear your reaction on this. Um, we're not a political program, but we often pontificate what a world would look like if we diverted some subsidies from, say, wind and solar, who've had pretty good, pretty good subsidies for 40 years, really for the last 20 years had quite a bit. But if some of those subsidies were shifted to the natural gas world, and the reason I say that is because well, take a look at solar and wind, and they've had milestones and markers that they've put out there themselves as an industry, and they haven't they, they haven't achieved it. We don't have uh, affordable solar panels for our houses, and we don't have wind energy that's affordable and, and economical and efficient yet. Um, and the natural gas world, there's so much of it. They're down in Texas. I mean, they're selling it at a minus number and up in the Bakken, and they haven't hit their they're flaring numbers for, for, I think, 13, 14 straight months. I think some subsidies would, would solve the problem in five years. I mean, a lot of oil companies, they don't have a lot of research and development money left over. They pay a lot in taxes. They make sure that the churches have bake sales, and they make sure that the Little League teams have baseball uniforms. So research and development sometimes is not there when you have $40, $50 oil. $100 oil, sure, but not where we're at today. Um with all that context that's there and trying to just, you know, make this a more of a pontification question as opposed to a political question. Sure. Uh, what, what do you make of that if some of those subsidies were given to the natural gas world? I mean, what kind of things could you guys do? Uh, right. I, I don't know if, if I would call it, uh, you know, a need for subsidies, but there are some gaps out there that, that could be covered uh, economically that would, would make some interesting thing happen, things happen. I, I think you're right about, um, you know, solar and wind all, all have their, their, their place and their values, but there sure is a lot of research out there now that uh, would give you the indication, indication that just the resource hurdles to, to make, you know, a, a planet that runs on those things is um, a pretty steep hill to climb. The, uh, the thing with with natural gas, some of the gaps that you could cover is it's it's available in so many different places, and uh, you know if it, if it costs just to throw out some around figures, if it costs uh, you know say four to four to seven cents per kilowatt hour to convert stranded gas to electricity, um, there's a lot of places where you could take that and put it on established electric grids. Utilities historically, at least since Purple came along, they, they typically uh, revert to paying their their lowest cost of generation, which uh, under Purple usually turns out to be how, however they calculate their their cost for coal power. So you know that, and that may not be a fair starting point anymore. But uh, let's say a utility is only willing to pay one to two cents per kilowatt hour. For electricity, then there's a there's a several cent gap um, there that you know. If again, I don't know whether subsidies is the right term, but if you can get dollars to flow into covering that gap from somewhere, uh, there's huge amounts of stranded gas out there that uh, could be placed onto utility grid systems or or uh, microgrids of various sizes. Of course, you know, from the utility perspective, that just like sometimes the places to to uh, where you put giant solar farms or wind farms, the utilities don't necessarily have current transmission capacity uh, of, 
available to take that power away. So it it have to be all planned together with both the um, the site by site generators and the utility systems. But that would be a that would be a good uh, use for some money that would cover those gaps. You mentioned the geography part of it. Would would some of this technology? Can you take it from play to play that sort of thing? Does it have to be customized? I know in a lot of times, you know, when you're talking to somebody about fracking, they'll they'll bring up very quickly that, you know, you go 10 feet in a shale play and it's a different recipe. A lot, you know, the customization is just inch by inch. Um, how, how universal is your technology and how customizable is your technology, I guess? Right. So, so during the uh, initial growth of our company, uh, which has been primarily – um, in the U.S. shale plays, all of our units that we built are on trailers, so super easy to move them around, uh, super easy to add more generators at a site, or if if there's well decline, it's it's uh, easy to uh, take out some of the generation capacity. We, ha- we have five different sizes of generators, and then the two largest sizes can be uh, set up in, in parallel, you know, taking care of multiple megawatts if that's what what the load requires and so all, all of that is flexible uh, geographically from site to site and also at a site it's it's easy to add or take away generation capacity so that's been a real flexible thing for us some of some locations that either don't have well or field gas or don't have it yet but uh, don't want to run diesel because of the cost or the the emissions um, if, if the load is large enough you can uh, often make a real economic case to build in sort of a virtual trucking pipeline of compressed natural gas or liquefied natural gas to uh, run the generators uh, you know some places will do that for the life of the project and some will do it until there's sufficient field gas available you mentioned you're down in Oklahoma. You've got offices in Colorado, uh, Casper, Wyoming. That's sort of the the, the bed of um, this war on oil and gas, as the governor of Colorado calls it. You know, Whiting recently had some cuts, uh, that sort of thing. How, how are you guys um, dealing with the new perception? Are you are, are you is it impacting you guys at all? Are you uh, going up against it at all? Are you, is, it, yeah. is it flying right over you? I guess, you know, because anytime uncertainty gets put into the marketplace, it affects businesses. You know, I mean, when $40 oil was there, that was the reason. It was uncertainty. Right now, a lot of companies in Colorado are using that word until, you know, the new rules are done. They don't know what to do yet. So that's, you know, that's some serious problems some companies are having. Others, it's not so much. So, uh, just kind of, you know, is that right. uh, that that newfound perception is that impacting you guys? I wouldn't say that it's uh, impacting us negatively. And of course, as you mentioned, the the um, the actual rules vary so much from state to state, and the activity, uh, the related activity, varies a lot from state to state. Well, one thing that's uh, you know good for us is is the emissions uh, of our gensets are uh, quite clean. The uh, on the on the types of emissions that we tend to call the EPA numbers, which are you know CO, CO two, and NOx, 
generally you can compare that's most common to compare to diesel diesel engine emissions and we're we're 85 to 95 percent cleaner than diesel emissions on those particular measures and then on stranded gas in areas where people are flaring gas uh, we're about so then then what you're thinking about is how much methane is is still getting through which uh, we would sort of put that in the, the greenhouse gas category as far as how we sort of uh, how we characterize the emissions and we're at 85 to 95 percent cleaner than um, a flare so it is an attractive thing um, but as you said in, in some states the operators are there's enough variation in in how the, the rules are evolving that people aren't quite sure what to do next so it, in the states you know whether it's that sort of volatility or or um, uh, price volatility, we've been we've been quite blessed to actually increase our market share during those those rough periods, primarily based on our reliability. So that's why I said the the first part of my answer to your question was it hasn't really affected us negatively. Uh, what it does is it creates opportunities for us to go to those companies that aren't quite sure what to do and, and give them a few options. So, Yeah, I can see that. Um, I think a lot of companies, too, are kind of waiting on some pipelines, some of those new pipelines to be opened up and, and get some new either crude or uh, natural gas flowing. Uh, are you guys, are pipelines your friends? Are they your competition? Um, you know, they're, they're a part of the industry, and, and I know you guys have got a niche um, how does pipelines come into play with you guys? Right. So, again, it, it sort of varies from area yeah. to area. In some places, you might say electric utilities are our biggest competition. Um, so the, the pipelines, uh, the gas takeaway pipelines, aren't necessarily a, a, a friend or foe because even where you have gas takeaway, you might not have electric utility service. So and sometimes you know we, we serve loads uh, for for the pipelines. Besides pad to pad loads or microgrids, we um, sometimes will serve pumping stations or compressor stations along pipelines. A lot of saltwater disposal wells we serve, and and we're also you know to give a, a little bit of balance, we are uh, also expanding out into areas of business that aren't necessarily related to oil and gas. A lot of campus environments are wanting microgrids now for reliability. We're, we're developing our basic unit into different form factors that perhaps for you know a long-term backup or standby solution, the genset doesn't necessarily need to be on a trailer. So we've got basically it's the same internal architecture but just different form factors looking at your linkedin page i see you met the governor of wyoming mark gordon huh yeah yeah great guy our company sponsors the uh, is one of the sponsors of the cheyenne frontier days rodeo so we had a opportunity to uh, meet him real nice guy yeah i met him at the energy expo in gillette wyoming um seemed like he was he's he, Pretty pretty open to the energy community, at least. <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's very well informed about it, and um, 
I, I believe earlier in his career he worked in it, so he's he's got that carryover knowledge of of what some of the challenges are. What's your background? Oh, it's about half electric utility and half data and telecommunications. And then toward the latter parts of my career, it's been applying all those things uh, from the oil and gas perspective of getting power out into the to the oil fields in the most efficient way. And and that you know what is the most efficient way tends to keep evolving uh, evolving a lot of what we talk to our our customers about is the the economics of you know should you put capital in up front to either build your own power lines into an area or pay a utility to build power lines into an area and then have an electric bill after that or should you just have no capital expenditure up front and run on generators uh, for the for the long term what we 60 to 80 percent of the time when we run those scenarios what we find is that uh, well sometimes actually just our our rental rates are head-to-head cheaper than utility rates in the when it all launders out but most of the time we're close enough that even if the utility price is a is a few cents cheaper over the life of the economic life of the project you you never earn back the capital that you would spend to build those power lines up front so you have to find have to find the right audience that is is looking longer down the road and um, is willing to look at some options that would help them avoid spending capital. We had uh, Pete Obermuller on with the Petroleum Association of Wyoming. You mentioned their annual meeting. I see you're speaking at the annual yes. meeting coming up. Talk to yeah. me a little bit about your topic. Well, that's, it's an interesting and more specific topic than what I, what I usually get into. It's, it's more specifically about what are some some real life solutions that you can use if you have a, a stranded gas problem out in the field. And so we're going to talk about the, the economics and the technical issues related to generating power from that stranded gas and putting it over on a utility or solutions like uh, there's, there's a growing, there's a growing niche of people doing edge computing out in the oil field by genera- generating power from stranded gas and taking that electricity and serving multiple uh, shipping containers full of computers, which is nice, steady load. So. Well, you mentioned your background was telecommunications. I was going to ask you how, how interesting that was for you, folding it over to this industry. My background is, is media, and a little little bit on the not so much telecommunications side, but the distribution side of electronic media and traditional media. And for me, it's it's been just a, a treat to watch the evolution of the oil and gas industry. Um, I, for me, I, I see where the telecommunications industry for is very much like what's going on, what you're talking about, in terms of trying to get remote power. Right, right. So, so there's... There's some metaphors just in the business structure, but what's been interesting to me is from my, my time in IT and my IT friends, I, I sort of have a philosophy that no modern project 
or, or that every modern project is ultimately an IT project if somebody wants to see a number on their computer. And well, the way that sort of folds into our business is our, our inside our generators, there's massive amounts of data flowing around in there. The, the engine control unit, the genset control unit, uh, there's, there's massive amounts of data in there engine engine and mechanical data electrical voltage current load type data and for our own purposes we we package up a data list of about 40 data points that uh, shoots back to the mothership uh, about somewhere between depending on the on the location anywhere between every three to five seconds or or uh, three to five minutes and uh, comes over satellite or, or cell. And we expose that same data to our customers if they want to use it. And some do and make, make decisions off of it. And it's the kind of data you can simply look at that data and, and say, hey, we need uh, maybe now that this well's been on in operation for a year, looks like it maybe it could get by with a, a smaller generator um, or our our operations guys like the data because they can they can see predictive elements coming through there and say, you know, send somebody out and uh, adjust something or, or replace something and and avoid an outage. So both both us and our customers have really come to rely on that data stream. You mentioned you had IT background. How um how far back? Does your IT background go punch cards? <laughs> well, my my college background goes back far enough to, to punch cards. Although I never had to use one because when I uh, at the time that I took a class, my first class in programming, it was um, at a at a location. The the college had just obtained a, a Hewlett Packard three thousand mini computer, and so all the programming was uh, via keyboard. I got to Oklahoma State University. My roommate was a computer science major, and he spent most of his days and nights typing punch cards at the time. So, oh, wow. Well, well aware of that. My, my actual IT work, though, was actually in the middle of my career, uh, working for, the, for a branch of the government. And uh, it, was, it was more, and it, it was interesting because it was about the time that the uh, people had had isolated computers for a while, and eventually the idea caught on, hey, we ought to connect all these in a network. So a lot of it was the buildup of the physical network and and integrating that into various telecommunication schemes. So it's it's been pretty interesting. But now you've dated me. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I always just see where people how far back they go because it's kind of funny that you know some of the biggest banks were run by punch cards at one time that was the security system was just these punch right. cards you know and yeah. nowadays you fa- flash forward to today and i don't know anyway because when i started out yeah. we, we were using light boards in the media room you know i mean so right. yeah uh sometimes depending on what i'm speaking i'll ask the audience for a show of hands who here loaded a a computer program off of their cassette tape player. Oh, wow. Sometimes I'll get an arm go up. We had floppy disks in my day. That was... Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're in Oklahoma. Are you part of a 
Oklahoma City. What, what are you hearing out there? I was going to ask you about the, some of the Oklahoma plays, but you're 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 a little bit bit away from the stu- scoop in the stack, aren't you? Um, no, not really. I mean, I can see them from my office window. Oh, okay. So um, there is they, drilling that close, huh? Well, no, you can't. I can't see any drilling rigs, ah. but uh, I can see those areas. Uh, this the uh, the what we tend to think of as the stack is uh, kind of centered around. Kingfisher County is sort of the epicenter of it, and okay. that's only about a 25-minute drive. Okay, so there's probably – I mean, you guys getting some activity then? I mean, in terms of that play, just kind of um, – you know, I like to get boots on the ground if I can, and that's close enough, man. If, if, if you've got sure. that kind of activity, I'm sure you see a few white trucks. But being Oklahoma City, I'm sure you see a few white trucks anyways. Yeah. Uh, yes, we do have units on rent in Oklahoma. Um, of course, our, our by far our biggest is – and our biggest concentration of units on rent is in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico. Okay. All right. Um, how about up with, in the, the the other plays? You mentioned the Casper yeah. and, and, and Denver, right. we, that we sort of thing? We, we basically have units from North Dakota uh, down to Wyoming and Colorado. Uh, have some incidental units on rent in uh, Utah and Montana from time to time. Then uh, mentioned Colorado is a, actually a growing area for us. Oh, and is then, it? Yeah, and then New Mexico and, and Texas and Oklahoma. The other thing you mentioned was uh, the IT background brought me to big data, big data, if you will. Sounds to me like you guys are utilizing some of that internally, um, bringing in that information and extrapolating it in how you see fit. How do you see big? data in in your little niche area with um uh, natural gas generation do you see that being a just a kind of an exponential jump here well like i mentioned our own folks will use it for uh, predictive things related to the equipment i sort of have a belief that there's probably some some trending data in there that could be used by the oil and gas companies to make evaluations uh, about you know the health and the life of the well most of the time they also have other streams of their own data you know measuring uh, fluids fluid volumes and types of fluids and those sorts of things that that come in and but but i think there's there's definitely a a, um, a future where all of that data stream gets merged and gets put into some sort of a optimal uh model people people tend to once once they have a well flowing that in a way that they're happy with they tend to not want to uh, tweak with that too much but in the in the areas where you have wells that you could uh, speed up or slow down then people might might be willing to take merge all that data and make decisions about in multiple well areas uh, in response to particular price signals that they have from from their buyers you know they might speed up or slow down production based on some of those factors i don't see it too much right now but well that's what i'm kind of curious about this is more of a you know another pontification question if you will that there's gonna be a lot of information that big data big data is going to be layered in and you know people are going to have kind of an overload of choices you know what do you Mm -hmm. layer in and what what right. do we what do we leave out? And uh, it's going to become almost a, a picking a winners and losers types thing. So at, 
at the micro scale, a, a good example is suppose you had a, a 10 well pad and every well was on uh, a pump jack and you wanted to use all that data to make sure that you sort of synchronized the, the various ups and downs of the pump jacks so that you minimized the, the power demand at, at any point in time. That's something you can do with all that data at, at sort of a micro scale. At a macro level, suppose somebody had a whole field like that and, and depending on, on how they were uh, selling, selling their product or sourcing their resources, you could get, get a, the bigger you go, the more optimal you can get. Kind of winding down here, some final thoughts. I like to leave the interview uh, with the guests being able to go whatever direction they want. If there was something we have not talked about yet or something they want to reiterate or maybe give, give a chili recipe, it's up to them. But uh, that way the question's not framed by me, if you will. So the floor is yours, sir. All right. Well, I, I appreciate the, the time and the interest. We, I, I guess the bottom line for us is we're really our, our real, in our, in our company's DNA, what we're really interested in is providing electricity uh, whenever and wherever. And that may, that for a while, that'll continue to be uh, in oil and gas, maybe for a long, long time. But it'll also be in, in non-oil and gas uh, applications, microgrids for campuses, and um, not necessarily a college campuses, but uh, different building environments could be related to backup power. However we apply it, we just want to make sure that we're always the most reliable option out there, and that's what we're all working towards.